0: Now, when you think of the term Good Samaritan, what comes to mind? Maybe it's somebody like Greg Robertson. Greg Robertson is a skydiving instructor in Arizona, and several years ago he was leading a group of divers who jumped from 9,000 feet. He was hovering over them as the instructor is supposed to do as they drifted down, and as he was, he watched as tragedy struck. There was a woman in the group named Debbie Williams, who tried to link up with three others of the divers in a hand-holding thing, but by accident, her head hit one of their backpacks, and she knocked herself unconscious. Now, that's the bad news. The really bad news is that she hadn't opened her chute yet. And so, unconscious, she began plummeting to earth, tumbling kind of like a rag doll, and as Robertson watched this, he decided he had to go after her. And so he straightened himself up completely, put his hands at his side, locked his ankles, turned head first, and in a head first dive with his chute not yet open, he went after her. Huh, can you imagine? Man, I get woozy on a ladder. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he caught up with her at 3500 feet above ground, which at the speed they were going over 200 miles an hour was meant that impact was less than 10 seconds away. He caught her at 3,500 feet, was able to turn her body around and face her in such a way that it was possible for her chute to open. He pulled her emergency ripcord at 2,000 feet when they only had six seconds left to go and then was able to dislodge from her enough to pull his own chute and his chute open as well. Ms. Williams hit the ground unconscious, landed on her back. She fractured her skull, broke nine ribs, perforated a kidney, and did a bunch of other minor damage. But she's alive. And in the history of recreational skydiving, the paper said there has never been a rescue like this ever recorded in all the history of recreational skydiving. What Robertson did, I would say, definitely falls into good Samaritan range, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Yeah, I would. Well, now, Good Samaritan is actually a word that comes out of the Bible. It comes out of a story that Jesus told in the Bible, and its language has kind of become part of our culture. We talk about people being Good Samaritans. We have Good Samaritan hospitals, Good Samaritan nursing homes, Good Samaritan mercy institutions. But folks, you know, Jesus did not tell this parable or this story so that we would have a nice name to use for our hospitals. He told the story because there's a truth in it that he wants to change our life with. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. What's the truth that Jesus wants to use to change our lives? Let's look at it together. We're at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan actually flows out of a confrontation that Jesus had. And the confrontation was with a theological expert in Israel who came to ask Jesus a theological question. And his question was, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? There's an assumption that lies under this question. And the assumption is that eternal life is something that I earn eternal life is something that I merit or I work my way to with my good works. And so the real question he's asking is, what works do I have to do, Jesus, so that I can earn or merit eternal life? Now Jesus says to him, well, what's written in the Old Testament law? You're an expert, you're a doctor, you're a theologian. How do you read it? He answered and said, well, The way I read it is you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. You hit the ball out the park, buddy. You get an A. That's exactly right. And of course, Jesus had said that himself. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, if you remember, on these two commandments, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments hang the rest of the whole Bible. They're the key, the two greatest commandments. So Jesus says to him, you're absolutely right, do this, verse 28, and you will live. Do these two things, and you will have eternal life. Do these two things, and you can earn your way into heaven. You say, now, wait a minute, hold on, just a second, time out. You're telling me, right here, that Jesus Christ is endorsing salvation by human works? Is that what you're saying? Well, now listen a second. What I'm saying is that a person wanted to know how to work their way into heaven. And what Jesus says to them is, if you want to know how to work your way into heaven, this is the way. Keep these two commandments and you can earn heaven. And by the way, that's still true today. You want to work your way into heaven? You can do it. All you have to do is keep these two commandments. But just don't forget, it's an all or nothing affair. What I mean by that is the Bible says, James chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law and yet violates it in one point, from God's point of view, in terms of God's jurisprudence, he's violated the whole law. In other words, there's no such thing as earning your way into heaven by keeping the law 99.5%. You can't do it. It's 100%. You keep these commands 100%, and yes, you can earn your way in. But if you don't keep them 100%, it's just like you did zero. There's no middle ground. It's 100% or nothing. Everybody understand? Now, let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves a question. Can anybody keep these two commands 100%? Can it be done? Is it even within the realm of possibility for you and I to do it? Can anybody love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength every moment of every day of their life? Can they? Can anybody love their neighbor the way they love themselves every moment of every day of every month of every year of their entire life? Can it be done? Can you do that? Now, can I do that? Well, I believe the answer is absolutely not. It can't be done. The way I see it, Parents qualify as fellow men, don't they? Don't they qualify? And so if you didn't blow your salvation and you didn't blow heaven by the time you got through your terrible twos, you definitely blew it by the time you were a teenager. There's not a teenager in the world who can work their way to heaven if this is the deal because there's not a teenager in the world who treats his parents or her parents the way they want to be treated every moment of every day of their life. You can't be done. It's impossible. You've blown it. I've blown it. This theologian has blown it. And what Jesus was looking for was humility and honesty about the fact that we can't do this. What he wanted the theologian to say to him was, you know, Jesus, I've really tried to love God with all my heart, and I've really tried to love my fellow man like myself. I've given him my best shot, but I can't do it. i failed miserably. And so what I need to ask you, Jesus, is, is there some other way to get into heaven? Is there an alternate plan for people like me who can't meet the demands of working my way in? Because I can't do this. That was the point that Jesus was trying to get this man to see that, yes, there is a way to earn your way into heaven, but nobody can meet the demands of getting in that way. So we all need an alternate way in, a way that doesn't depend on our good works, and that's why Jesus Christ came to this earth, friends. That's why he died on the cross, to provide an alternate way for people who can't work their way in, which means all of us. You with me? Now, if you're here and you're still trying to work your way into heaven, let me just take a moment and say to you that I hope you're listening. I hope you'll listen to what God's saying to you this morning in the Bible. He's telling you that no matter how hard you try or how sincere you are, you can't do it. He's telling you that no matter how hard you work at it, you're not going to make it. You need plan B. Just like the theologian needed plan B. Just like we all need plan B. And plan B is that we confess That we're unable to do it. Plan B is that we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Mercy is something that God gives to people who don't deserve it. And that's what we're looking for because we can't deserve heaven and that we trust Jesus Christ to do something for us to forgive our sins and get us into heaven, something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And if you're here and you're still trying to work your way into heaven, I hope this morning you'll really seriously consider The fact that God's telling you, you can't get there that way. You need the other plan, the one Jesus Christ came to give you. Now, to come to God the way Jesus wants us to means that you have to humble yourself. It means that you have to admit you can't do it. And that's exactly what this theologian would not do. Look with me, verse 29. Let's get back to the story. But the theologian wanted to justify himself. So he said to Jesus, and by the way, Jesus, who is my neighbor anyway?" Just who is my neighbor? Now look what's happening here. There's two alternatives you've got when you're faced with a standard you can't keep. Listen, the first alternative is to humble yourself, lower yourself, and admit, I can't do it. The other alternative is to lower the standard to someplace where you can keep it. You understand and what jesus was looking for is for this man to lower himself and say I can't That's not what the man wanted to do. He said i'm not lowering myself in my self-righteousness I'm determined i'm still going to try to work my way into heaven What I want to know is can I lower the standard? I may not be able to live up to it. Can I bring it down? So by the way, who is my neighbor anyway that I'm supposed to love the way I love myself? I mean, is it the people just around my house? Is it 50 yards from my house? Is it half a mile from my house? Is it only the people in my village? Where does neighbors stop that I have to love them like this to earn my way into heaven? You understand what's going on, what the question is all about? It's an attempt by this self-righteous man to bring the standard down to a level where he could keep it. Because if neighbor just means my family and my friends and all the good old boys I know, then maybe I got a shot at keeping this. But if it means everybody in the whole world, (laughs) well, we got another problem then. So where's the line, Jesus? And that's why Jesus tells the parable. Remember, the parable is meant to answer the question, how far does this word neighbor really go? Okay, let's look at it. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead there on the road. And a priest, the highest religious office in Israel, a priest, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he crossed to the other side of the street and went on by him. And a Levite, who was the second highest office in Israel, came by. And when he saw the guy, he went on the other side of the street and he walked right by him too and left him there in the road. Now, this road between Jericho and Jerusalem is a very notorious road for robbers during this time. It's a very treacherous road. It drops 3,600 feet in a matter of just a couple of miles, and there are lots of snaky turns, and people would hide behind these turns and jump people. And this is what happened to this traveler. And though while he was laying there beaten up and bleeding, a priest came along. Crosses the other side of the road, goes right on by. Levi came along, crosses the other side of the road, goes right on by. Some commentators have said, "Well, you know, these guys weren't so bad. They weren't really that cold-blooded or that hard-hearted." Actually what it was is that they knew the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it says that a holy man, a priest or a Levite, is not allowed to touch a dead body. If they touch a dead body, then they're ritually unclean for a week. And so they just were trying to obey God. They just didn't want to become ritually unclean. They just didn't want to go over and touch some dead body. Friends, let me tell you something. That dog won't hunt. That dog won't work. The reason is that they didn't even stop. The indictment against them is they didn't even stop to find out if he was dead. I mean, they could have picked up a stick and poked a guy to find out if he was dead. They could have thrown a rock on top of his head to see if he went, uh, to see if he was dead. They could have done something to check if he's dead, then go find a coroner. And if he's alive, help the guy. But the indictment against these guys is they didn't even stop long enough to care. They could care less. That isn't why they didn't stop. Had nothing to do with the Old Testament, had nothing to do with the law of God. It had to do with the fact they had a lot of religion and no compassion. That's why they didn't stop. A lot of religion and no compassion. Well, then comes the next character, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was next. Now, if you've been here for a while, you know I've told you about how Jews and Samaritans felt about each other, and we could sum it up by saying if the priest and the Levite were regarded as the filet mignon of ancient Israel society, Samaritans were regarded as dog food. That gives you a basic comparison. Less than dog food. Jews just despise Samaritans, and Jesus could not have picked a more despicable character in the mind of Jewish people to bring into this parable. But as big as the difference was between priests and Levites and Samaritans in social standing, the difference between the heart response of this man and the response of the priest and the Levite was even bigger. Look, and when he saw the man... He had compassion upon him. He took pity upon him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he poured oil and wine on them. And he put the man on his own donkey and he walked and he took him to an inn. And there he took care of him that night. And the next day when he had to go about his business, he took two silver coins out and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after this guy, do whatever he needs to get him well, and when I return on my way back home, when I finish my business, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you've incurred taking care of this guy. Hey, now that's a slightly different response than the priest and the Levite, wouldn't you say? Here was a guy who had compassion. Here was a guy who took a personal interest. Here was a guy who took some risk. I mean, how did he know this wasn't a trap and that robbers weren't hiding behind the rocks waiting to jump on him when he stopped? Here was a guy who was willing to be delayed, willing to be inconvenienced, willing to even financially have to pay something to help another human being. And you know what's really interesting? is that even though he knew how the Jews felt about him, and even though he knew he was in Israel, and even though he knew the chances were this was a Jewish guy, and even though he knew that if it was him lying in the road, no Jewish person would stop to help him, isn't it interesting that he never inquired to see whether this man lying on the ground was Jewish before he helped him? Isn't it interesting he didn't pull him up by the hair and go, Hey, are you Jewish? Yeah, I am. Well, rot. He never did that. He said, here's a man who has a need. I don't care whether he's Jewish or he's not Jewish. I don't care whether he would have helped me or whether he wouldn't have helped me. Here's a man who has a need, and I'm going to help him. Now Jesus makes this theologian give the final conclusion to this whole thing. Jesus says, verse 36, now Dr. So-and-so, which of these three men do you think was a quote-unquote neighbor? to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers. Well, the expert in the law said, I guess it's the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, you're right. So you go and do likewise. You see, when it comes to loving your neighbor as yourself, the theologian's question was, who is my neighbor? How far does this go? What are the limits? And Jesus' answer was, who isn't your neighbor? Tell me somebody who isn't your neighbor. There is no such person. Now that's the end of our passage, but you know it leads us to ask the really important question, and that is? (laughs) So what? Right. So what? As I look at this parable, I see a great message here for us as Christians. I'm going to talk to those of us now who are Christians. We know Jesus Christ. He lives in our life. We know that we know him. There's a great message here for us, and it's all found in the last four words. What are they? Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Why? So that we can earn our salvation? No, we've already got it. So we can keep our salvation? No, we can't lose it. Well, then why should we? Because we want to imitate Jesus Christ who loved us the same way. You know, there's a song that says that Jesus Christ looked beyond my fault And he saw my need. I love that song. Because when I came to know Christ as a college student, that's exactly what Jesus did for me. I had so much fault you wouldn't have believed it. I had it pinned and hanging all over me. And Jesus Christ looked beyond all of those faults in my life and saw my need on the inside. And he took care of my need. And not only did he see my need, but he did something about my need. Starting with dying on the cross to pay for my sin and then coming into my life and revolutionizing my life. Jesus just didn't see my need He did something about it. And this is the kind of lifestyle that Jesus Christ calls every one of us who claim to be followers of his to live as imitators of him. Now, whereas the priest and the Levite had a lot of religion and they didn't have any compassion... I find that the Spirit of God living inside of us as Christians provokes us. If you're a true Christian, I'm sure no matter how selfish you are and know how selfish you were when you came to know Christ, the Spirit of God living inside of you, if He really lives in there, He provokes you to want to care about other people. That is just a natural part of being a Christian because it's part of the heart of God. But the problem is that it's not that we don't want to care for other people as Christians, it's just that we don't often follow through very well sometimes is the church. We as the church have often been accused of having a lot of religion and not a whole lot of compassion. Why? Is it because the Spirit of God doesn't make us the kind of people who want to care for others? I want to care for others. I bet you do too if you're a Christian. But we don't always do such a great job. Why not? Well, I've got three reasons to suggest as I close this morning how we can do better In being good Samaritans for other people? Because if you're really a Christian, I guarantee you that you want to in your heart. So let's talk about how we can do a better job. Why don't we do a better job of it? Number one, three reasons. Number one, because too often we don't take our theology to work with us so often as christians we don't take our theology to work with us and what i mean by that is that jesus didn't tell this parable to be a story that we just told on sunday morning in church he told it so that we would have a philosophy to live our whole life by and there's so many of us as christians when we walk out the house on monday morning we walk out and say well you know that was great for yesterday but i'll put my bible back on the shelf this morning and i'm going to put everything else i learned at church back on the shelf this morning i mean when you walk in the world out here friend you lock and load all that sunday talk is nice for sunday talk, but this is lock and load country out here, pal. You can't live like that out here. And I say that's ridiculous. Jesus Christ gave the Bible to teach us how to live Monday to Saturday, not just on Sunday morning. And if you're not letting the Bible teach you how to live Monday to Saturday, then you're not getting the Bible the way God wrote it. Yes, this is for Monday to Saturday, and we need to walk out of our house every morning saying to ourselves, God didn't send me in the world today just to take care of me. God sent me out here to take care of people and help people and care about people that he brings across my path who have needs because he put me in this world to be a good Samaritan. Go and do likewise. That's what he said. But too many times we put our theology on the shelf and we let the world system and our own selfish nature teach us how to live on Monday to Saturday. That's why we don't do a better job. You know, Dwight L. Moody was one of the greatest evangelists America ever produced. Maybe the greatest, bar none. In 1899, he was in Oakland, California, preaching a series of messages, and he finished up one night, and then he and his song leader, a fellow named D.B. Towner, Mr. Towner, got on a train to go from Oakland to Santa Cruz. And as they were on the train, it was early in the morning, like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and they had a sleeper compartment. But in those days, you didn't have private sleeper compartments. They were kind of like semi-private. And so there was room for 3 or 4 people in these compartments. Well as they were traveling they made a stop and into their compartment the train was very crowded comes this young drunk guy. He got blood all over him, he was filthy, he had a, an eye swollen shut, could he've been in a fistfight and a brawl? He stunk of whiskey, he was a mess. And he got and in, came into Moody's compartment, and he recognized Moody. I don't know how; maybe he heard them talking, but somehow he recognized Moody. And he said to Moody, "He said, Mr. Moody, I want to sing to you some of the hymns I learned as a little boy." And he starts singing every song he knew. And Moody was just getting more irritated and more irritated. I mean, the guy was dirty, he was smelly, he was stinky, he was obnoxious. Finally, Moody picked up his little suitcase and said to Towner, Towner, come on, we're getting out of here. I'm not going to sit here with this guy. Towner said, Well, Moody, the train's packed. There's no place else to go, there are no more sleeper cars. He put his bag back down, sat back down, began complaining out loud, but this guy's still singing, began complaining out loud about the railroad and why they would let obnoxious people on to bother peace-loving people like him, and he was tired. He had to preach the next day, and he was going on and on. Finally, the conductor came by. He got grabbed the conductor and pointed this young drunk out to him and said, you know, I got to think things do tomorrow. I'm Dwight L. Moody. I got to preach tomorrow. I need this guy out of here. I need my sleep. Get him out of here. So the conductor came in and Put his arm around the young man and spoke a few quiet words to him and took him back to the baggage car where he cleaned off his wounds and where the conductor took his own handkerchief out and made a bandage to put across the guy's swollen eye and found him a comfortable place where he could lay down and put him to sleep. And then he came back and told Moody what he had done and everything was taken care of and that Moody could rest quietly now. And Towner telling the story says it got real quiet in their berth which was unusual for Moody. And about 15 minutes later, after no one had said anything, Moody spoke up and said, and I quote, he said, Towner, he said, what that conductor did is an awful rebuke to me personally. I preached against Pharisaism last night to a crowd, and I exhorted them to imitate the Good Samaritan. And now this morning, God gave me an opportunity to practice what I preached. And what I found is that I have one foot in the shoes of the priest, and the other foot in the shoes of the Levite. And the rest of his ministry, Dwight L. Moody would tell that story against himself as an example of how easy it is to separate and disconnect preaching from living. Now folks, we're no different than Moody is. It's awful easy to separate preaching from living. And I'm telling you, one of the reasons we have trouble being better good Samaritans is because we separate preaching from living. We ought to have a sign over our door every morning when we walk out that says in giant letters, you are entering good Samaritan territory. Because that's true. And God sends us out that door every morning, not just to go take care of number one, but to care for the needs of people. Take your theology with you. Number two, why we have a hard time doing this is because we're too busy to slow down for people. Often we're in so much of a hurry, we don't have time to slow down for people. You know, to be a good Samaritan means you've got to be inconvenienced. It means that you're going to have to put out extra effort. It means that your comfort zone's going to get disrupted. It means that you're going to have to get personally involved. It means you're going to have to flex your priorities that you had for the day so that there's room to fit in the need of a person that maybe you didn't plan on. And I find that one of the greatest enemies of my being a good Samaritan is not that I don't want to be nice to people. It's not that I don't want to help people. It's just that I'm running such a crazy rat race pace that I always seem to be in such a hurry to get something done. I don't have time to slow down to talk to anybody or care about anybody that's not in my schedule. I got my day timer with my list of things to do today, and they're not in it. You know what I'm saying? And folks, God has to come along and remind me often. He has to kind of go, you know, oh, thanks, Lord, I needed that. Thank you. That people, are more important than schedules, that people are more important than accomplishments, that the most important thing I will ever accomplish in any day is to care for somebody who has a need. That's the most important thing the day could do. Boy, did I get a lesson in this one time. A few years ago, my son and I, my son Justin, who was about six then, was a Thursday night. We were coming home, and I was in a hurry to get home. We stopped at a 7-Eleven not far from my house in Fairfax. We pulled up to this 7-Eleven. I was going to run in and get a cup of coffee because I would work to do when I got home. I needed my caffeine buzz, you know, and I was going to get him a Coke, decaf, because he was going to sleep. And we pulled up in front of this 7-Eleven, and right where I pulled up, there's this drunk sitting right in front of us, leaning on the wall of 7-Eleven, drinking peach wine, just drunk as he could be. So I got out of the car and I got Justin out. We started to walk in 7-Eleven. This guy says to me, he says, "Hey sir, could you get me a pack of cigarettes?" And I said, "No." And I walked on in, got my coffee, Justin got his coke, and we come back out, and guess who I got to walk by to get back to my car? He's still sitting there drinking peach wine. When I walk by and this time he says to me, "Hey, He says, Hey, could you help me get home? He said, I only live not too far from here, but I don't think I can get home by myself. I got that big street to cross out there. I don't think I can get across it without getting hit by myself. And I said, I'd really like to help you, son, but I can't help you. I'm in a hurry. I got some things I got to get home and do. I'm sorry. I hopped in my car, started my car, put it in reverse. Now, you know what I was in such a hurry to get home and do? I had to speak the very next night to the Central Union Mission Banquet, and I was in a hurry to get home and prepare a message about how important it is to care for down and outers. (laughs) This is true, absolutely true, God's honest truth. That's what I was going home to work on. And I put my car in reverse, and I started to pull out, and I thought, I can't do this. So I slammed my car back up in the park, got out of the car, walked up to him, I said, what's your name? He said, my name is Jimmy said, all right, Jimmy, what kind of cigarettes do you smoke? I smoke Salem's. I said, all right, sit here. I'll be right back. Went in, got him some Salem's, came back out, gave him some Salem's. I said, now, where do you live? Can you find where you live? I think so. I said, all right, come on, let's go. I said, Jimmy, we started to walk to his car. I said, Jimmy, you don't feel sick, do you? Do you feel sick, Jimmy? He said, no, I feel fine. I said, because if you feel sick, Jimmy, we'll walk. No, he says, I feel fine. I said, okay, now, Jimmy, if we get you in the car and you start feeling sick, you remember, you tell me right away, as soon as you view yourself getting sick, you let me know, okay? I will, I feel good. I said, okay, Jimmy. So I put him in the car and buckled him in. He kept rolling over. I kept saying, Jimmy, you got to sit up. Tell me where we're going here. We took him home. His wife had left him. She'd taken the kids. You'd never seen such a pig pen in your life. You think your room in college looked bad. I want to tell you, it didn't look nothing like this place. Food all over everywhere. There was a loaded revolver sitting on the table there, and he picks up this revolver and starts waving around drunk as a moose. And every time he waved in one direction, I tried to move the other direction. And he's going to my son, he said, I bet you you've never seen a loaded gun up this close, have you, son? And I'm going, No, and I haven't either. Put that thing away. I called up a good friend of mine named Rick Wood, who's got a lot of experience working with detox people, and we got him into a detox program in Washington. This guy gave his life to Christ. He went down to Asheville, North Carolina, to a detoxification, a Christian alcohol abuse program, began working for them, driving vehicles for them. And I still get letters every once in a while today from Jimmy telling me what God's doing in his life. Can you believe that? But I'll tell you what. God taught me a big-time lesson about being in so much of a hurry, I don't have time for people. Now, I tell you, the message went great the next night because all I did was tell the story of Jimmy. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I didn't even have to work that hard. And I and my sermon. But folks, let me tell you something. If you and I are in such a hurry that we don't have time for people, you and I are in too much of a hurry. And we're in so much of a hurry, we're going to go right past our soul if we're not careful. We need to slow down. And you know what? What you accomplish for the U.S. government, what you accomplish for your employer, what you accomplish for yourself is not going to make nearly as much difference as how many people's lives you can help and touch in this world. Slow down. Third and finally, you know why sometimes we're not the kind of good Samaritans we would like to be? It's because many times our relationships with people are too shallow. You don't just be good Samaritans to down and outers. I mean, I've told you a couple stories about down and outers, but one of the greatest places to be a good Samaritan is with fellow Christians. They have needs. That's a great place to be a good Samaritan. But the problem is so often our relationships with our fellow Christians are so shallow that they don't know what our needs are and we don't know what their needs are. We pass each other by, you know, like two ships in the night and nobody knows enough about the other person that they could care for them if they wanted to. We have a little 23-month-old daughter. Most of you know that. She has a very serious seizure disorder. And this church has been marvelous in caring for us and supporting us. Fairfax County Social Services is in touch with us because they're helping us a lot. And they always comment at the kind of care that our church has been giving us. Every time they come, they make some comment. They're amazed at the support that this church has given us. But you see, I have one advantage built in that you don't have. And that is I'm up here every week and I can tell you a little bit about what we're going through. I can tell you a little bit about what our problems and our struggles are. You don't have that built-in advantage. How are people going to learn what your needs are? And I have people all the time who'll say things like, well, this church or that church or even our church wasn't friendly to me, didn't care about me. When I had needs, they didn't meet my needs. Well, now, wait a minute, hold on. The question we have to ask is, did you put yourself in a position with relationships inside that church where people could have even found out what your needs were? That's the question to ask first. Then if the church didn't come through, all right criticize them. But don't say, I only came on Sunday morning. I came in for an hour. I left for an hour. I had all these needs. The church did nothing. Wait a minute. Slow down a second. If this side of this auditorium this morning wanted to be good Samaritans to this side, could they do it? No. There's no way. And this side couldn't do it to this side. Why? Because sitting in a big old meeting like this, relationships are too shallow to find out what needs are. And you can't be a good Samaritan until you know what needs are. And so I want to end by talking about not just so what, but now what. What do I want from you? Now what? I tell you what I want from you. I want from you, if you come to this church on Sunday morning and you're not already involved in some small group, a place where you can be real with people, a place where you can get to know people, a place where you can share your hearts and your hurts with people, a place where you can learn what other people are facing and how you can help them. If you're not already involved in a relational small group, what I want from you is I want you to get involved in one. That's what I want. Because that's the only place that people can be good Samaritans to you, and you can be good Samaritans to them. How are you going to obey Jesus Christ unless you're at that level with people? You can't. And we have almost 75 different groups that you can be involved in. I don't care what your needs are or what you like, we got a group for you. We've got nurture groups, we've got recovery groups. Got an alcohol problem, we got a group for you. Got a drug problem, we got a group for you. Lost a loved one and you're in bereavement, we got a group for you. We've got groups for discipleship, Bible study, prayer. We've got working groups that work on everything from drama to dried flowers. I don't care what your interest is, we've got a group for you. And even those working groups, people learn to care for one another. And folks, that's what I want from you. We have a fellow here. I saw him. He was in our second service. His name is Dick Schott. Dick's from Connecticut. He moved here, and within two months of moving here, his wife died. She actually died from a peanut allergy. She had a peanut allergy, and she ate some food that had peanuts in it, and she didn't know it, and she seized up and had, I don't know all the technical medical terms, but her body went into seizures and spasms, and she died before the rescue squad could even get her to the hospital. You know where that death happened? It happened in one of our home groups. Because when Dick Schott moved here, within several weeks of coming, he began going to a home group because he said, I need people and we need relationships and we need to build friendships. And they were at a group meeting with six or eight other couples from our church when that death happened, happened last year. You know, Dick Schott will stand up and tell you, he stood up in a membership class, he'll tell anybody who asked him that this church gave him the most marvelous support and the most marvelous care that any church imaginable could have ever given. He said it at the funeral. But you know why? It's because there were six couples who were there when that woman died who knew what that man needed and took it upon themselves to make this man's needs their own. And they still do it to this day. Now, if he would only been coming to Sunday morning service and you'd have read about his wife dying in the bulletin, do you think he'd have gotten that level of care? No way. But this man was proactive and he was smart enough to realize he needed relationships with people. And I want to challenge you. You're going to have to be proactive. We got the groups, but you're going to have to be proactive. And right out on our Welcome Center table, we've got three pieces of paper. They used to be green, yellow, and blue, but people already have taken them all. So now they're all white because we had to Xerox some more. But anyway, one says small groups at McLean Bible Church. That was the green one. One says home groups. That's the group that Mrs. Schott died in. That's the blue one. One says fellowship groups. You say, why do you print three pieces of paper for the same stuff? They're all different. I told you we got a bunch of these. And what I want you to do is go out there and get one of these if you're not already involved in a group, and I want you to get involved. You say, and that's scary. Uh-huh. You say, it's risky. Uh-huh. You say, I feel a little weird doing it. Uh-huh. You're right. But folks, the rewards will make up for any bit of discomfort you have. Take a risk. How in the world are you ever going to be a good Samaritan keeping an arm's length distance between you and other people? The Good Samaritan had to go over and touch this guy, hug this guy, pick this guy up, get close enough to smell him. And that's where Good Samaritan work happens, close to people. So you need to get close to people, and we need to get close to you if we're going to help you. Well, I'm out of time. That's my heart for you. Gosh, I hope your life will be changed as a result of what you heard here this morning. I hope you'll do something about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that we can talk this morning about the Word of God and talk about what it means for our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for being so busy that we don't have time for people, because you weren't, and you were running the whole universe. Forgive us, Lord, for so often putting our theology on the shelf with our Bible Monday morning and letting the world... Tell us how to live, and letting the world define our values, and letting the world system define our lifestyle. Teach us, Lord Jesus, that the reason you gave us the Word of God, among other reasons, was to define our lifestyle and our priorities, and help us to walk out of the house on Monday morning with our theology in our back pocket, and to live it. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of each of us here You know, Lord, this Washington society is a very arm's length society. People retreat home to their little fortress. But Lord, I pray you would teach us as Christians that that's not the way you want us to live. You want us to have relationships with people such that we can understand and feel their needs and and help them and, and they can do the same for us. And I pray that you would motivate many, many people who've been coming here and enjoying Sunday morning but haven't gone any farther to take the next step and get involved in a level with people where where they can do ministry to our lives and we can do ministry to their lives. It'll be a little scary and a little intimidating, but I pray you'd give people what they need to be proactive and press through that, God. Take the risk, because the rewards are worth it. Change our life and change our whole outlook by what we've heard here this morning. May we go out to be good Samaritans, Lord, because that's what you were to us.